This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. From time to time, our church, Houston Chinese Church, prays for you. Uh, we um, uh, keep you guys in mind, and we, we just appreciate you so much. Um, you know, though our people, for the most part, don't know each other, we do share the same gospel. We share the same love for God's word and the same appreciation for expository preaching. And so that's why it's just my honor to open up God's word and to preach to you out of a familiar Old Testament text. And so if you have your Bible, I ask for you to please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. And we will be reading this morning out of verses 17 to 40. So this is a familiar story, I would imagine, for many of you. So again, this is 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down, And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation... Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell It consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. And now we ask for the help of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit to come to accompany the preaching of that word, that hearts might be changed, that hearts might be convicted, that hearts might be comforted, that you do what you need to do to minister to us for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If your average day is anything like mine, you constantly face an overwhelming number of choices. What to wear, what to eat, what to do with your free time, who to spend that free time with. And many of us have trouble deciding. We waver back and forth with these choices. Sometimes we're paralyzed by indecision. And, and, and these are just the easy choices of life, of little consequence. We're not even talking about the big decisions in life. Like... What school should you apply to? What degree should you pursue? What job should you take? Who should you date? And and should the two of you get married? And then there are the difficult decisions that you might have to make for other people. What school should you send your kids to? Should you homeschool them? What should you do with your aging parents when you and, and your siblings can no longer provide them with the care that they need? There are so many difficult decisions and so many competing choices with different opinions pulling you one way or the other. And of course, this kind of situation, this kind of indecisiveness creeps into our spiritual lives and and the choices that we have to make about spiritual realities that, that have eternal consequences. And so I imagine there are some of you here You are still seeking the faith, still asking yourself the big questions of life, still not sure whether you're going to trust your life into Jesus' hands. You see some good reasons to believe, which is probably what explains why you're in church this morning, but you don't feel ready yet. For now, you're pushing off that decision. And there could be, for some of you here, you've grown up in church, or you're a kid, growing up in this church. And so you believe in Jesus. That's not the issue here. 
But if you're honest, you'd admit that Jesus is not a very high priority in life. Your attention, your, your allegiance is drawn away by other things, by, by lesser gods, if you will, by your studies, or by work, by a particular relationship you're in, by your family, your family members, by Netflix, by video games. Suffice it to say, you've got many competing priorities, and you're wavering in your commitment to the Lord. And so the same question that Elijah posed to the Israelites in this morning's text could, could really be asked of us. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? How much longer will you continue hesitating, pushing off a decision for a later day? When will you decide whether or not you're going to trust in Jesus? How long will you waver in your allegiance and your attention between God and these lesser gods in your life? When will you decide that this is the day I'm going to give my life fully over to the Lord? Of course, I do hope that the answer is today, that, that today is the day. I hope today you will choose to follow the Lord God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's my prayer for you. And that's why, friends, we are looking at 1 Kings chapter 18 and looking at the best-known event in the life of Elijah, this confrontation that he has with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I think Elijah has a lot to teach us. So a lot to teach those of us who are wavering between different loves, between different allegiances, limping between two different opinions. And so my prayer is that today, by the end of our time of worship together, that you will make a decision, that you will make a choice. And so I've divided this message for us into three sections, and I'm going to be basing it on three things that I see Elijah doing in our text. And so if you are following along and you want to uh, write these things down in, in, the, in the bulletin, the three things I see Elijah doing are first, challenging our indecisiveness. Second, confronting our idols. And third, calling on the incomparable God. Challenging our indecisiveness, confronting our idols, calling on the in, incomparable God. Okay, so let's begin with Elijah challenging our indecisiveness, our, our limping between two different opinions. Now, before we, we dive into this morning's story, we have to consider the context of this confrontation between the prophet of, of Yahweh and the prophets of Baal. The events of our story happened eight to, to 900 years before Christ, this all occurred in the northern kingdom during the time when, when the nation of Israel was split into two. And so the king of the north was Ahab, a wicked king. And his consort was Jezebel, who was even more wicked. And together they were on a campaign to make Israel religiously pluralistic. That is, they, what they wanted to do was to maintain the worship of Yahweh, but at the same time to spread and to establish Canaanite religion, especially the worship of Baal the Canaanite storm god, the god of rain and thunder. And so in response, Yahweh sends Elijah to Ahab to essentially say, Yahweh is shutting up the sky. 
He is going to be sending a drought and there's not going to be a drop of dew until I say so. You see what the Lord is doing there by sending Elijah with that message to Ahab? He's essentially trying to humiliate this so-called storm God that you're, that you're worshiping. This great God of rain that you call Baal. God is going to shut up the sky to prove a point. He's exposing the frailty and the, and the futility of the false gods and the false idols of the world. And everything comes to a head here in chapter 18. So there's been three years of drought by, the, by this point. Elijah is now instructed to confront Ahab and to set up a final confrontation. They are to meet on top of Mount Carmel. And Ahab is told to bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who's the consort of Baal. And with all of Israel present to be witnesses, there's going to be this showdown. There's going to be this winner-take-all final battle. So listen again as I read, starting in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Baal, at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the prophets, to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So Elijah, you see, he's challenging Israel's indecisiveness. When it came to religion, they they were trying to play both sides. They were trying to hedge their bets. They they weren't outright, notice, they weren't outright rejecting their Judaism. They they didn't abandon the worship of Yahweh. They just wanted to incorporate as well the worship of Baal. They, They didn't want to limit themselves to just one God, to just one belief system. Because as those who lived in an ancient agrarian society, there was a strong desire to want to curry the favor of a storm god. If you want fertile land, if you want good crops in season, well then it's extremely, it's extremely helpful to be on the good side of a rain god. And so they refused to decide between Yahweh and Baal. They feared making a decision that they would eventually regret. They didn't want to miss out on the benefits of a storm god if they ended up choosing Yahweh. But at the same time, they didn't want to miss out on all the covenant promises that were made to their forefathers if they chose Baal. And so they pushed off that decision and they kept trying to limp between both. But according to Elijah, that is a weak excuse. You think you have this solid system down where you sacrifice to Yahweh every Sabbath But then you start off your work week with a sacrifice to Baal, praying for rain. You think you've got this firm, solid solution, but really, you're limp. You're limping. You're you're, you're hobbling between two different opinions. You don't have a solid footing in either religion. You're hobbling back and forth between two different belief systems. Got to choose one. You either follow Yahweh or you follow Baal. But the people... Respond to that challenge with silence. Look at the end of verse 21. And the people did not answer him a word. They were thinking what some of you might be thinking yourself. Why do I have to choose? Why are you forcing me into this binary? I, I, I just I want to believe a little, little, little bit of both. Why can't I do that? I, I think that's what 
the average person in Elijah's day would have said, and in our day. I, I, I appreciate this about Yahweh worship, and I appreciate a little bit of that about Baal worship. Why are you making me choose? Why do I have to choose one or the other? And of course, that's the same response you find today. Most people don't want to be forced to have to choose between religions. They'll say, I'm open-minded. I'm I'm very open-minded. I'm not going to say that one religion is better than another. I think they all have something to offer. So why are you making me choose? I, 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 I have a foot in both, and I think that's a pretty good place to be. But Elijah would say, friend, that is the worst position to be in. You don't have a solid footing in either side. You're limping, and that is not a stable position to remain in. Let me speak directly to those of you here who have yet to make a decision about, God, about the God of the Bible. I, I hope you see, by just this little section of the text, I hope you see just how precarious your position is. Maybe you prefer not to take sides. Maybe you prefer to remain neutral. But I hope you see that there is no position of neutrality when it comes to the God of the Bible. If you're dabbling here and there with religion, you know, not, not really identifying with, uh, with one or the other, what you've really done is you've, you've rejected all of them. And you've actually formed a religion of your own where, where you are the creator. You are the judge over good and evil. You are the final authority, the final arbiter of the truth. And so in actuality, you already have made a choice. You have already taken Aside, you're on your own side, and you're in opposition to the God of the Bible. Friends, if you don't come to a decision now, then one day a decision is going to be made for you. A decision that will take place on the final day of judgment. And trust me, you will not like the outcome. Don't assume that judgment is only coming for those who are stridently anti-God, for, for, for the antagonistic atheist, or for the brazen blasphemer. It's not just for them. No, there, there will be plenty of pleasant, open-minded people who will similarly face judgment for refusing to make a choice in this life. They limped all their life between two opinions, and it will end in a tragedy. Now look, personally, personally, I would prefer you over an antagonistic atheist. I, 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 I like your open-mindedness. Open mindedness. I, 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 I appreciate that. You would make a better friend to me than someone who, who is very hostile to my faith. But I'm not the judge. My choice really is of no concern. It's the judge of all the earth. He's the one you need to be concerned about. And your limping between opinions won't earn you any credit and it won't earn you any excuses on the day of judgment. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's the message of Elijah. So the first thing we see him doing in this story is challenging that very indecisiveness that many of us deal with, especially when it comes to the biggest question of all, whether we're going to trust in the God of the Bible. 
But next, what we see him doing is we see him confronting our idolatry. You see, I was just speaking directly to those who don't consider themselves Christians, who, who maybe don't consider themselves an inherent, a, a, a follower of, of any religion, those who are still on the fence with these questions. But what I want to do now is to speak to those of you who, who are very comfortable calling yourself a Christian. You, you might feel very relieved up to this point and, and excused from, from the bite of this text because you already made a decision. You've already decided for Jesus. Whether recently or, or years ago, you chose the Lord God. And so, so you don't see yourself as limping between two different opinions. But brother, sister, please do not brush aside this passage. You may have chosen the Lord. You are perhaps comfortable, perfectly comfortable on his side. But is your heart wholly devoted over to him? Granted, you're not drawn to worship any particular god or other religion out there. You're a Christian. You're unashamed about that. You are public about that. Your lips only confess Jesus as Lord. But is it possible? Is it possible that your heart is still limping between Jesus and these lesser gods, these lesser idols in our life? That's what the Bible calls them, idols. And that's really what Elijah is confronting here in our text. He's confronting idolatry. So let me show you what I mean by continuing in our story. Uh, Start with me back in verse 22. Verse 22, Elijah lays out the rules of this contest, and he purposely stacks the odds against himself. So he gives the prophets of Baal every advantage. He says, all right, let's take two bulls. You get to choose first which one is yours. And you get to go first to build an altar, uh, sacrifice the bull, lay it on the wood, but don't set it on fire yet. Instead, call on the name of your God to bring the fire, and then I'm going to do the exact same thing with my bull. And he says in verse 24, the God who answers by fire, he is God. He's the one. And the people... In verse 26, they agree to that. And uh, well, in verse 26, the prophets of Baal, they go ahead and they, they take their bull, lay it on the altar, and they wait. And it says in the text, they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noontime, we're told that Elijah begins kind of mocking them, kind of, kind of you know, Poking at them. Speak up. Cry louder. Maybe Baal is, is deep in thought, musing. Or, or maybe he's, he's relieving himself. Yes, friends, this is ancient potty humor. He's, he's in the bathroom. Someone go get him. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and you need to go wake him up. Now, that mention right there about Baal being on a journey is actually quite significant because according to Canaanite mythology, once a year, during the dry season, they understood Baal as succumbing to the god of death. And he would go on a journey, and he would travel down into the underworld, and then he would only again reappear at the start of the rainy season. That was within their mythology. And so what Elijah's doing is he's not just teasing them. He's exposing the impotence of their rain god. He's reminding them, 
that every year, Baal has to succumb to the god of death. He does it every year. He's not as powerful as you might think. And so what do the prophets of Baal do? In verse 28, it says they cry aloud. They they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Wow, that's intense, right? That's a strange, ancient custom. I mean, no one today would ever hurt themselves in a futile attempt to satisfy unappeasable idols, right? Right? No one would do that today. What I find so fascinating is that the term Baal is actually a generic term for, for any god. So depending on the context, Baal could also be translated as master. So a Baal, if you think about it, is a spiritual master. It's something or someone that has some degree of control or power over you. And since it's a very generic term, that means that anything that has power or control over you could be rightly called a Baal. So do you see what this means? It means that everyone has a bail in their life. There is something in your life that you are willing to make sacrifices for. Something in your life that you will shed blood to get or to shed blood to keep. Now you might call it a successful career or academic excellence. The ancients, they would have just called it bail. You might call it romance. You might call it marriage, kids, family. They would have said, that's a bail. Maybe your bail is money or power or beauty or youth. If it has a power or control over you, if it has a spiritual authority that you look to, that you depend upon for meaning and for significance in this life, whatever that is, that has turned into a bail. I realize for for modern people like us, it sounds strange to be told that you're involved in something so primitive sounding as Baal worship, but that's what scripture is saying. Everyone worships something. Everyone serves something. And so the question is not, do you worship a Baal? Do you serve a Baal? The question is, what kind of Baal? What kind of master are you worshiping and serving. And the whole point is if your Baal, if your master is not the one true God, if it is a lesser God of this world, then you have a master that is impossible to please. Look back at our text. Remember how the prophets of Baal, remember how they were limping around the altar and they were slashing themselves with swords? It sounds and it looks like this ritualistic dance that they're performing, but don't you see, these are not worshipers dancing around the altar out of ecstatic joy. These are worshipers trying to perform for their bail. If they want their bail to pay attention and to answer their prayers, then they're going to have to perform. They're going to have to hit all the right steps. They're going to have to start dancing. But no one answers. And so they start cutting themselves Apparently, the worshiper has to bleed if he really wants to get Baal's attention. But verse 29 says, there's no voice. Verse 29, no one answered. No one paid attention. It's tragic. But that's what you can expect when you serve an idol. Idols 
make for cruel masters because they are never satisfied. They demand you to sacrifice more, perform better, work harder. They're impossible to please. Friends, think about who or what you are serving. If getting into med school, getting, getting into law school is your bail, if it's being accepted into that prestigious program, if that's your bail, if you are hoping that that's going to give you the significance and the status and the security that you've always been craving for, then you will be perpetually dancing and performing, trying to hit all the right steps in your academic journey. You'll eventually resort to sacrificing friends and family, maybe even hurting yourself, slashing yourself, working yourself to the bone. But like those prophets of Baal, you are not going to hear a voice of affirmation. No one will answer, and no one will pay attention. If chasing that dream job of yours becomes your bail, if, if career advancement or career recognition has become your obsession, if you are expecting that job of, you, of yours to give you a reason to get out of bed in the morning, to provide meaning and, and, and significance in your life, then you are asking your job essentially to play God. You're expecting your career to give you an identity. But your job is a cruel master. It will call you to sacrifice your health, sacrifice your marriage, sacrifice your family to, to, to meet all of its insatiable demands. No matter how many goals that you achieve, you're constantly going to be asking yourself, what's next? What's next? There's always this next promotion to receive, another rung of the ladder to climb. And you'll never fully make it because whenever you get to the top of that ladder, you're going to get there and you're going to look up and you realize there's another ladder even taller for you to climb. Your career makes for a pitiful God because it will always leave you dissatisfied. Now, maybe for you, career hasn't risen to that God-like status, but for you, perhaps it's relationships. Your life is centered around relationships, other people, that person you're dating right now, your spouse, your children. You don't just care for them. You don't just love them. You need them. You need their approval, their affirmation, their love, or otherwise you feel angry or jealous or empty or worthless. That's how you know when a loved one has gone beyond just being a loved one to now a bail, a master over you. Not only are you setting yourself up for disappointment and frustration in that relationship, you're actually being cruel and unfair to that person. You're forcing that person to, to really carry around the weight of godhood, to function as a god for you. You're expecting them to give you what only God can provide. Doing, doing that, putting that expectation upon them is going to crush them. You could very well lose that relationship. They don't want to stay under that pressure, and they might leave you. Fellow human beings were never meant to be your bail. So friends, I, I hope you see, man, just how relevant this text is and how we're not all that far removed from the, these ancient Canaanite practices. Well, let's be very careful here in our efforts to make this text very relevant for us. Let's be careful not, not to misidentify ourselves 
in this text. I, I think we do that quite often when reading the Old Testament and we see a particular hero, whether it's Elijah or it's David or it's Moses, and we, we tend to, to put ourselves in, in that hero's shoes. But let's be careful not to assume that we're the Elijah in this story. That we're the one that God is relying on to go out there and to confront all the idolaters in this world. No, we're either one of the 450 prophets of Baal who have outright rejected the, God, the, the Lord, or we're one of the Israelites weakly limping between our devotion to the Lord and our personal Baals. So friends, it's not until we recognize and we repent of our own idolatry will we ever be ready to call upon the one true God. And that's the last thing we see Elijah doing in our passage. We see him calling on the incomparable God. I think Elijah lets the prophets go first because he wants everyone to see for themselves how foolish it is to trust any earthly Baal. He's hoping that's going to lead the people of God to repentance and and prompt them to finally call upon the one true God. So turn back to our story and let's just see what happens when Elijah finally steps up to the plate. He tells all the people to come near. He rebuilds the altar of Yahweh. He sets up 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then it says he digs a trench around the altar. He lays out the wood. He puts the bull on top. And then he asks, this is interesting, for four large jars full of water to be poured over everything. Not just once, not just twice, three times. Twelve jarfuls of water drenching everything. And it says in the text, the water ran around the altar, even filling up the trench that he dug. Now look at verse 37. Verse 37, Elijah prays, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh. He is God. Friends, this is, this is one of those special moments in redemptive history where God rolls up his own sleeves, outstretches his arms, and he demonstrates his sovereign power. I mean, he vindicates his godness over all of these false gods of the nations. This moment is, is right up there with the Exodus. The Israelites never forgot about this moment. The memory of this moment was passed down from generation to generation. In fact, there's this place in Luke's gospel where Jesus and his disciples enter into a Samaritan village and the town folk there are inhospitable and quite rude. So this is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. Luke 9. And the disciples there, they're upset by the response of the Samaritans. And so they asked Jesus, listen to this, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Some manuscripts add, as Elijah did. So you see what they're thinking about at that moment. They're thinking about 1 Kings chapter 18. That's the text on their mind. They were thinking, hey, Let's ask God to send down some fire on these fools, just like Elijah did on Mount Carmel. Let's get these guys. 
But Jesus rebukes them because they don't get the point of Elijah's story. The point is not, hey, rest assured, God's people, he's always going to send down fire on your enemies. I mean, no. Remember, in the story, the fire didn't actually fall on the prophets of Baal. The fire fell on the altar and the sacrifice. You see, the disciples misidentified themselves as the Elijah in the story. They failed to recognize that the one person more comparable to Elijah is their Lord, Jesus. In fact, a few chapters later in Luke's gospel, after the disciples had had recently asked to call down fire on their enemies, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, that yes, he did come to earth to send down fire, but not in the way that you think. He says in Luke 12, verse 49, I came to cast fire on earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you see what Jesus is saying? See, there Jesus is talking about his impending death, and he's describing it as a baptism by fire. He is saying, fire will come down from heaven, not on my enemies, but on me. I'm the Elijah, calling on the incomparable God to send down fire. And I'm the sacrifice laid out on the altar of God. I'm going to carry your sins with me to the cross, and there on the cross, the fire of God's holy wrath, aimed at your sins, will come down and consume me. You see, friends, what happened on Mount Calvary was the moment in redemptive history that surpasses all other moments, including what happened on Mount Carmel. Unlike Baal, who, remember, was forced to succumb to death once a year on an annual basis, Jesus, he willingly gave up his life, and once for all. No earthly Baal is going to willingly do that for you. No, they're going to demand you to perform, you to dance, you to slash yourself. Jesus, oh, he is so much better. Jesus is better. He is the one and only master who sheds his own blood for the sake of his followers. The one and only God who gets slashed for the sake of his worshipers. So friend, if if you're still... If you're still on a search right now, if you're still searching for God, still struggling uh, perhaps to, to put off idols, to fully devote yourself to the Lord, wherever you're coming from this morning, the answer is the same. You look to Jesus, the one who freely gives himself to you, who pays attention to you when you cry out to him, the one who will answer your prayers. Every other Baal will demand you to perform, you to sacrifice, you to shed your blood. But Jesus, no, Jesus will say, I performed for your sake. My blood was shed for your sake. Jesus is different. Jesus is better. Jesus stands alone above all because he alone is God. So friends, if any of you have 
really been limping back and forth between two different opinions, between believing in Jesus or not, or between giving your whole heart to him or not. Now is the time. Choose this day whom you will serve. Make a choice today. You know, when the Israelites saw the fire come down, they fell on their faces, we're told, and they worshiped, saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Well, if we're more like the Israelites in this story, well, let's go ahead and imitate them. Let's turn our eyes to the fire that came down on Mount Calvary, and let's fall on our faces right now and worship the Lord, for he is God. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this familiar text. Thank you for making it alive for us this morning through the power of your spirit and the preaching of your word. Of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you will lead us in this moment to choose, to choose Jesus as the one with whom we will give our whole lives, the one whom we will worship, the one whom we will serve. Open up our eyes to see Jesus and his great sacrifice for us as the only one, the worthy one, the one we are called to worship. Oh, Jesus, do that in our hearts right now. We pray in your name. Amen.